First John, open up to First John. Who knows the theme of First John? Anybody? Theme? Theme of First John? I guess we haven't done that one yet, have we? Oh, go ahead. You got the test of eternal life. The test of eternal life. So what John is doing in 1 John is he is painting two pictures for us. He's saying here's a picture of what the life of a believer looks like. And here's the picture of what the life of an unbeliever looks like. Which one do you look like? And why do you think this is important? Why do you think having a test for whether or not we are in the faith, having this picture of what a believer looks like, what an unbeliever looks like, what are some of the reasons that's important? I think there's a few, but what do you think? You can throw one out. Like, There's a few different answers here. Give me one reason. Why? What is one reason why it's good to be able to distinguish between true salvation and or maybe being incorrect about salvation. So you can tell who's a false teacher? There you go. That's not the first one that came to mind, but it's definitely on the list. So you can tell who's a false teacher. So you can be discerning, right? Because you need to be discerning, especially in the age that you all are arriving at. You're arriving at an age where you've been taught by your parents and through the church so many things about the Bible and about God and about what Christianity is and the gospel, and that's great. But you're coming to an age where you've got to make that faith your own and really know for yourself, what do I believe? And guess what? You're also coming to an age where the world is going to start challenging you from a lot of different directions. And some of them will challenge you in the way of, oh, the Bible's stupid, Christianity's dumb, don't believe that. Some will challenge you that way, but some are going to challenge you in the sense that they're going to claim to be Christians. They're going to claim to believe the Bible. You know what? I've never pulled up a church's website and saw on the website, like, oh, we don't believe the Bible. All of them say they do. All of them claim to be Christian churches. Yet, are all churches good, true, teaching the gospel churches? No. Even the ones that say they believe the Bible oftentimes don't and teach against it. Even those who say they believe the gospel oftentimes have a false gospel. You've got to know how to discern these things. Ladies, you're coming of an age where guys are going to start to approach you. And especially as you get to college, they're going to say, oh, you're a Christian? Well, they're going to see that as a way to get into your life. And oh, well, me too. I'm a Christian. You want to talk about Christian things? As crazy as it sounds, guys are going to try to pretend to be Christians just because they like you and want to trick you into liking them. And you need to be able to tell, okay, which of these guys are truly following Christ and which ones are just using that as a way to get into my life because they like me? And guess what? Your dads will help out a lot with that. Take them home to dad and say, hey, dad, can you help me figure this guy out? They'll love to do that for you. And even as a guy, so you're going to, I don't see that happen as much. Like, I don't see girls pretending to be Christians as much to, like, win over guys. But you got to watch out for everything, right? But, like, just in general, for all of us, as you get older, people are going to approach you with different ideas of what's the gospel or what is Christianity. And John is helping us distinguish between the true and the false. Another reason this is critical, not just for your discernment, but for your own self, right? Like, to evaluate your own life. What does my life say about my relationship to God? You know, I've grown up in church. Maybe I feel like a Christian because I've just been raised in this environment. Maybe I even got baptized at some point or like recited some prayer. But as I examine my life now, what does my life tell me about my relationship with God? You know one thing John doesn't really do? He doesn't say like, okay, here's the test of eternal life. Think back to when you were a kid. Did you get baptized as a kid? John doesn't do that. John also doesn't say, think back to like when you were young. Did you used to pray with your mom and dad? Did you, did you at some point make a confession of faith? Some people use those sorts of things to like determine whether or not they're a Christian. John doesn't do that. John is going to paint pictures for us of a believer and an unbeliever and say, Look at your life. Look at your life now. Which one do you look like? And so this letter is critically important for our lives as Christians. 
to help us know what the true gospel looks like as it plays out in the life of a person so that we can be discerning when people claim to be Christians and also so we can be discerning, discerning of our own lives and our own hearts. This morning, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, and John's just going to give us a really practical test, a really practical test. Do we obey God's commands? It's simple. Do we obey God's commands? And I don't have a PowerPoint for you this morning, so I'm going to try to give you the outline real clearly. I'll give you the four points that we'll go over, um, and I'll kind of point them out as we move through them. But first, the evidence of salvation. Second, the life of a liar. Third, the life of the saved. And fourth, live out your salvation. Live out your salvation. And the theme here, if you want a theme, increasing obedience characterizes the Christian. Increasing obedience characterizes the Christian. Not perfect obedience, because um, like Clint taught us this past Wednesday, that doesn't happen. But increasing obedience. Let's just read 1 John verses two, chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The, ones who, the one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Our first point here, the evidence of salvation. The evidence of salvation. And this is where we're going to spend a lot of time, okay? I think we're going to spend almost like 75% of our time on this first point because I want us to be really clear why the John gives this test. Like, how can this test be true? How can we be confident in this test? And I want to spend time here because, being honest, for me, this was a very challenging concept. Like, I grew up thinking that you simply just said a prayer and like God had to save you like nothing else had to happen like it didn't matter how you lived the results of your relationship with God were irrelevant that's kind of what I was always taught and as a kid I would read the Bible a lot and I would get to passages like this and I would read how Paul would so confidently talk about the Christian's life. And I always thought it was kind of weird. I'm like, OK, I'm being taught like this very easy belief system. Like you just say you believe and that's all that matters. Like what happens after that? Who cares? That's what I'm being taught. But then when I go read the Bible, the Bible's always talking very confidently that God's going to change your life as a Christian. And I had trouble connecting those until one day I was like, you know, I'm just going to go with what the Bible says and find a different church. But um, that, that was really a point of clarity for me. Um, but for the longest time, I was like, how does the Bible so confidently say that Jesus changes our lives? And so I want to talk about that. John just says very clearly, do you want to know if you're a Christian? By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. How simple is that? How simple? And is he talking about perfectly? No. In fact, he's already told us, right? Like, if you go back to what we looked at this past Wednesday, verse 4, um, and uh, sorry, I, I, you look back to, um, I don't know, I wasn't planning on going back there, but he goes earlier and he says, look, I'm writing these things so that you don't sin, but if you do sin, like when you sin, it's going to happen. We still live in this world. We're not perfected yet. We're not in heaven. When you sin, we have an advocate for us in Jesus Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. So even John, as we read this through this letter, is going to acknowledge that as genuine Christians, we're still going to sin. The Bible acknowledges that all the time. So he's definitely, the Bible's definitely not talking about perfect obedience, but what he is saying is that your attitude towards obeying God and growing 
and that attitude of obedience is really what indicates whether or not you are truly in Christ. If your life is characterized by seeking to walk in obedience to God, that is evidence of your salvation. On the flip side, what he's going to tell us is if you really don't care at all about obeying God and living for God and wanting to know what God desires in your life, that's a huge red flag that you are not in Christ. It is a huge red flag. Your attitude towards obeying God is indicative of whether or not you're a Christian. Would Jesus agree with this? Would Jesus agree with how you put into act what he commands is indicative of whether or not you are truly in him? Absolutely. Let's look at Luke chapter 6. Verses, you don't have to turn there. You can if you want. Luke 6, verses 46 to 49. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus is like, stop paying me lip service. Like, you know how some people like to be flattered? Like, they're kind of self-conscious, and they're always fishing for a compliment to feel better about themselves. They need people to say nice things to them. God isn't that, okay? God, God is not up there just hoping for your lip service and hoping that you'll say the right things. It's not about some superficial acts of religion. God's not interested in that. God is interested, do you truly know him and seek to live in obedience to him? Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And, and Jesus then goes on the tell us that there's judgment coming and the only ones who are going to be okay when judgment comes are those who have heard his words and put them into practice are those who have heard his call to the gospel accepted it and acted upon it he goes on in luke chapter 6 he says everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, key part, acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when judgment comes, when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly that's all of, like, all of us could potentially be in that category, right? I mean, if you're here at North Lake Bible Church, you've heard the gospel. And if you've heard and not acted accordingly, Jesus says, you're a foolish builder. You're like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst again, and it immediately collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, potential point of confusion here is that it can seem like what I'm saying, what Jesus is saying, what John is saying, is that we're saved by our works. Are we saved by our works? I see a lot of heads saying no, and that's great, because that is absolutely the right answer. We are in no way saved by our works and our own merit. This, again, was something that confused me when I started to first, like, when I'd start to read about John and Paul and just how the New Testament talks about the Christian life. I was like, wait a second, are we saved by our works? But the Bible is crystal clear we are not. Jesus is crystal clear we are not. John is crystal clear that we are not. We are 100% saved by the unmerited grace of God that occurs and is, is, is given to us through Jesus Christ. Our salvation is 100% secured by Jesus Christ because on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. And while he was on this earth, he lived a perfectly righteous life so that through faith in him, his, our, the penalty for our sin is paid and his perfect life is attributed to us. That is what merits and earns our salvation the righteousness of christ and the forgiveness we have in him romans three twenty eight. 
Paul writes, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Titus 3.5, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Is the Bible crystal clear that we are saved by God's grace? through faith in Jesus Christ? It's very clear. Everybody feel very clear on that? His death paid the penalty for our sins and his righteous life is credited to us by faith. But in, even in those verses I read to you just a moment ago, think of Titus, we just read Titus in Ephesians. Even in those verses where the, they're making it crystal clear, you are saved by God's mercy and grace, with no merit of your own mixed in, did you hear the talk about the results of that salvation, even in those verses? Even when Paul is making it clear to us we're saved by God's grace through faith to no, from no merit of our own, he's at the very same time making it clear that this grace, though, is going to change your life. It's going to radically alter you. Titus 3.5 Paul says that the Holy Spirit does a washing of our lives, a regeneration of our lives. The, the New Testament talks about you are dead in your sins, and there's no spiritual life in you. But when God brings that saving faith into your life, did you notice Ephesians even talks about even that faith is a gift from God? It, when, when that saving faith comes into your life, you are born again. You are regenerated. You are a new creation in Christ. And all of this has a practical outflow in the way you live every day. The Holy Spirit is renewing you. Anytime the Bible talks about your salvation, it talks about moving you from the dead spiritual being that you were to a living spiritual being and, and conforming you to the image of Christ that talks about sanctifying you. And when we talk about sanctification, there's two different aspects to it. Sanctification means to be separate, and so that happens instantly. The very moment you are saved in Christ, you are very instantly set apart 100% in Christ. But then we, have, we talk about ongoing sanctification, that ongoing transformation of your life more and more, more, and more into Christ-likeness. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Even Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, we're saved by grace through faith, um, not, as, not as a result of our own works, for we are His workmanship created God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk with them, walk in them. I love that he says that God created you for good works, prepared beforehand. This wasn't an afterthought for God. When we talk about God in eternity past, choosing you for salvation, Along with that, he chose you for good works. He chose you to change your life, renew your life. And it, it, it was always part of his plan. Our salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit, 100% the result of, the, of faith. But that faith with the Holy Spirit in our lives changes us. It changes us. You can't just get part of the Holy Spirit's work. Like, you can't just get, like, okay, the Holy Spirit gave me faith, and he saved me, but then that was it. He just left me. There, there's no indication anywhere in the Bible that that is possible. It's, when, when Paul is writing to the churches, 
He's telling them, this is the full work of salvation in your life. The Holy Spirit is going to change your attitudes. The Holy Spirit is going to change your behavior. Have y'all heard the terminology fruit of the Spirit? Fruit of the Spirit? We get that from Paul, right? Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is in your life, this is what it produces. Plants produce fruit, right? Because they're plants. Like an apple tree produces apples because that's what an apple tree does. The Holy Spirit produces these things in your life because that's what the Holy Spirit does. It's from Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Paul says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you are in Christ, are you going to do those things perfectly? No, you're not. You're going to have moments where you struggle with the joy that God wants you to have in life. You're going to have moments where you're not as gentle as you know God wants you to be. But here's our comfort and our hope. The Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ, is inside of you and promises to be at work in your life. One of the things, I'd say my top struggles, I got plenty of struggles, everybody does, we're human, right? But if I was like ranking my struggles, I would say having godly joy, like biblical joy and biblical peace in my life are probably the two that I struggle with the most from that list. But I've found tremendous comfort in this passage because you know what? If this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and I know the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, like, I don't have to sit here hoping like, oh, hopefully one day I'll have peace that God wants me to have, or hopefully one day I'll have joy that God wants me to have. No, there's tremendous comfort in saying, you know what? I am going to be growing in this area. I might not be very good at it right now. I can look back over the past few years. By God's grace, I've gotten better, and that's exciting. And by God's grace, I know I'll continue to get better because it's the promise of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. There should be tremendous joy that comes from knowing the Holy Spirit is active and promising to be working in us to make us more and more into who he wants us to be. And he does that through all sorts of different ways, right? Like we have to be okay with God's process. We, we trust and know God is perfectly loving, perfectly holy, perfectly wise, and he perfectly cares about every aspect of your life. And sometimes he grows us in these things through difficult circumstances, right? He grows us in these things through challenges. We've got to be willing to submit to the process, trusting God's work in our lives. This idea that like, oh, I can have the saving faith aspect of the Holy Spirit, but nothing else, which is basically what I was taught growing up, that's just a lie. And the reason that's very confusing as a young person, when you hear that, you can just have faith in none of the works part, and then you go read the Bible, is because they don't match up. The Bible brings them together over and over and over again. Now, uh, we're not going to be perfect, right? Like, that's not going to happen. How about the rate of growth, the rate of spiritual growth, and the rate of spirituality? Do you think that could probably be different for a lot of us, too? Absolutely. And frankly, let's be honest, it's really hard to judge that. Like, I mean, like, how do you really judge? Like, oh, this person. It's not like your gas gauge in the car where you're like, oh, I got. It's hard to judge that, and it is going to look different. Like, we're all going to grow at different rates, and we're all going to struggle with different aspects. Like, I don't know. I think there's certain things, by God's grace, I look at in the fruit of the Spirit, and I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty good at those most of the time. I look at other ones, and I'm like, okay, that's where I really struggle. You're going to have a whole different evaluation. 
You're going to have different things like, oh, I'm really good at what Brandon struggles with, but um, I got these. We're all going to have different things, right? And different levels of growth. We're all going to need to repent every single day, throughout the day, all the time, because we're just not going to be perfect on this earth, and our lives are still tainted with sin. But this isn't unusual, right? Think about any area of God's gifting in life. We see it at different levels, don't we? Like, we see different level of gifting. I mean, even think of, like, the gift of teaching. I hope I'm gifted to teach since I'm up here a lot, um, and I think I might be a little bit, but I'm not John MacArthur, right? Like, nobody's going to confuse me with John MacArthur. It's the same spiritual gift, but at a very different level. We all have different levels, levels of gifting. Maybe evangelism is your thing. Like, you are very gifted when it comes to evangelism. But you might not be the Apostle Paul, right? Like, we all have different levels of gifting. God works at our, in our lives in different ways. And frankly, those things are impossible to judge and determine anyhow. Um, But if you're in Christ, while there might be varying levels, there is going to be a growing pattern of obedience in your life. That is what is very clear. And you're going to slip back sometimes. I don't know. Probably the stock market's a bad example for y'all. But like if you look at like the stock market over the decades, the general pattern is up. It goes down sometimes. Sometimes it goes down a lot. Like in 2008, it went down a ton. Like you might hit some really rough patches in life. But when we get to Hebrews chapter 12 and we talk about the discipline of God, like God loves you as a father. And he's not going to just let you backslide if you belong to him and leave you there. He's going to bring the circumstances, the discipline, the training into your life to get you back on your feet and continue that upward pattern of obedience. One of the things I saw that I really liked, um, so most religions of the world, in fact, all of them I can think of other than biblical Christianity, there's a faith component to it, right? Like most of them say, yeah, you certain things, but all of them also add something you have to do for your, your own merit to earn salvation. So the religions of the world, if you were to make it a mathematical equation, they would say faith plus works equals salvation. And that's what all the false religions of the world would say. What the gospel says, works is still there, but it moves to the other side of the equal sign. What the gospel of Jesus Christ said is faith equals salvation plus works. Works comes with the saving grace of God. And there's no confusion here. John is saying you cannot have salvation apart from that. If you don't have a changed life, you don't have salvation. Now with that, the rest of what John says in our passage this, this morning flows very straightforward out of that. So our second point, the life of a liar. The life of a liar. He says in verse 4, The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So here we have someone who says, I know God. Do a lot of people say they know God? That you think maybe they don't know God? <laughs> yeah. Do a lot of people claim to be Christians? And you're like, I'm not really sure this person's a Christian. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the key ways you're going to be able to discern that is do they seek to obey God? Because if they don't, if obedience means nothing to them, and they're like, yeah, you know, I see where God says this in the Bible, but I don't care. Who cares what they claim at that point? They're not Christians. Do you realize that's like why, okay. And Jesus talks about church discipline there, and 
So let's, let's start with the foundation here. To be in the church, a member of the church, the church is the body of Christ. To be a part of the body of Christ, you have to be a believer in Jesus Christ, right? Doesn't that make sense? And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when you sin and you recognize you, you sin, you're going to repent and you're going to seek obedience. So where does church discipline come into play? It's right here from the logic that John's given us. It, 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 do we ever practice church discipline because somebody sins they, and they repent and they're like, hey, I'm, I'm wrong? No, never. That doesn't happen. Jesus says it's when somebody is living in sin, you point to them in the Bible like, hey, this thing you're doing is sinful. And that person says, yeah, you're right. It's sinful and I don't care. I agree with you. It's wrong. It's sinful. I agree with you that God commands me not to do it, and I don't care. I'm going to do it anyhow. The reason church discipline makes sense in that situation is because what John is saying here is that person, who cares what they claim, they're not a Christian. And at that point, it doesn't make sense for them to be considered part of the body of Christ because they're evidencing when they say, yeah, I know what God says, and I don't care about what God says. What John is saying is that person, if they claim to be a Christian, they are a liar. Just think about the word Christian. It means you belong to Christ. You are a part of Christ. Like, I'm also an American because I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm a part of America. If, if you're European, it's because you're part of Europe. If you're a Christian, you are claiming to be a part of Jesus Christ, part of the body of Christ. And what John is saying is if you claim to be a part of the body of Christ and a part of Christ, but you say, yeah, but I don't care what Christ says, you are a liar, and the truth is not in you. What is one of the primary titles given to Jesus Christ? What's one of the main things they call him throughout the Gospels? We've heard it already this morning. What's one of the main things they call him in the Gospels? Begins with the L. It's pretty easy. Lord. One of the main things they call Jesus is Lord. What does Lord mean? Lord means... You are the boss. You are the one in charge. You are the one who sets the rules that we will follow. Jesus would say, why do you, just like we read in Luke 6, why do you call me Lord if you don't want to do what I say? We can't say Jesus is Lord of our lives if we don't care what he has to say. When we do that, we are simply living a lie. The thing about this lie is it has eternal consequences. Eternal consequences. Because Acts 4.12, Peter says, and he's right, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. What you do with the person of Jesus Christ, whether you make him Lord of your life or not, has eternal consequences. Because judgment is coming. That's the point Jesus is making in Luke chapter 6 that we read earlier. Judgment is promised. One day, you will be taken from this planet. And you will have to stand before God. And if you're covered in the righteousness of Christ, there's forgiveness. There, your, 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 your eternity is secure in Jesus Christ. But if you're not covered in the righteousness of Christ, the only expectation is judgment, condemnation, damnation. It's the most critical choice you make in the entirety of your existence. Jesus Christ, are you making him Lord of your life or not? That's why John is writing this letter. Because 
it is, he wants to help us discern in our own life what have we done with Jesus Christ because it is the most critical decision we will ever make in our lives. Romans 8, 1-4 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Even the worst of sins are forgiven in Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Don't you, you look at the men, the women, that God saves throughout the Bible and the way he uses them. Have you ever noticed it's very often some pretty horrible people? The Apostle Paul, if you're not familiar with the life of the Apostle Paul, he was a horrible person. Like, his thing before coming to Christ was persecuting Christians, having them thrown into jail, like approving, overseeing them being stoned and put to death. Like, it's the exact opposite of the type of person you would think God would say, hmm, let me save this person, not only save him, but now use him to write 13 letters in the Bible. Like, can you get more radical of a change than the life of Paul? You can't. God says, I'm, just to show everybody what the grace of God does and how powerful the grace and mercy of God is, God said, I'm going to do something pretty extreme here. I'm going to take one of the worst people on this planet, I'm going to save him, and I'm going to use him to write 13 letters in the New Testament. It's not an accident. God is showing us. And then Paul writes Romans 8, 1-4. Imagine how much Paul loved writing that, considering his past life. Because you know, Paul probably thought back to his past life and was like, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Paul probably set his pen down for a second and said, thank you, God, for that reality that despite how horrible I was in the past, there is now no condemnation. But it's the exact opposite for those who don't know Jesus Christ. The only expectation is condemnation. And it doesn't matter how good you think you are. If you are normally a pretty good person in your own estimation, and like you don't do a lot of bad things, and even your parents are like, hey, you're a good kid. It doesn't matter. If you're outside of Jesus Christ, their only expectation is judgment. Third here, our third point. From verse 5, the life of the perfected. I think I gave you a different wording the first time I went through. The life of the saved, the life of the perfected, the life of the saved. Verse 5, whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. There is no more sure sign that you are in Christ than if you just want to Know God and obey Him. Like, that's the driving passion of your life. I want to know God and obey Him. Like, for me, one of the challenges, because I truly believed I was, believe, I was saved at like the age of seven. I truly believe that. Um, but sometimes people are like, hey, how do you know? And I'll be honest, like, I don't remember crystal clear tons of details from the night I believe that I became a Christian. But when I evaluate my life in that moment, like as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old, the passions of my life as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old were to read God's word and like seek to live it out and to love the church and to serve the church and I look at that and I'm like, you know then, I think I probably was a Christian even as an 8 or a 9 and a 10-year-old because like really the Holy Spirit's work in my life based on like what John is saying here, that's the only way that makes sense. Like when I was 9, my parents weren't believers and so that was always kind of weird. Like 
my parents would drop me off at church and pick me up very faithfully. I'm very grateful that they were always like, hey, yeah, you want to go to church here? We'll drop you off. That, that in retrospect, they were probably like, free daycare. But um, like uh, when I was nine, my mom's like, what do you want for your birthday? And I'm like, I need a good study Bible, mom. She was like, okay. And like, like it was just a weird thing. And I look back at that and I'm like, the Holy Spirit, like that's just not something that happens in the life of an unregenerate person. If you see this love, but even, okay, let me, I think this is good too, because even then, like there was times as a young, like a middle school student where I was like, am I really a Christian? Like, do y'all ever feel that sometimes? Like you just, even though you think you probably are, you're like, hmm, I wonder, you know, like I think that struggling with your salvation can be something that everybody wrestles with at some point. John is helping us here. If we love God and want to keep his commandments, this is a sign that the love of God has been perfected in us. And you're not doing it in an effort to earn your salvation, right? Like, you love God and want to obey and serve him, not because you're like, oh, I need to earn my salvation and really lock this thing in. No, you're doing it just because you love God. And he's the biggest thing in your life. And he's where you find the greatest source of joy and peace in your life, and you want to be pleasing to him. He's lining up your passions and your desires with, with his. This is how you know the love of God has been perfected in you. That, that word perfected, I think, is sort of misleading in the English word. The Greek word is teleo here. Teleo, and teleo really just means something reaching its end point. It's, it's destined purpose, like something getting to that purpose, that end point it was intended for. That's really a better way to look at it. The end goal of God's love for us and the end goal of his saving us, the perfected goal, is this growing, obedient fellowship with him. And lastly here, fourth, just kind of a summary point. It's really a summarization. Living out our salvation. Living out our salvation. Verse 6. John's just making it clear to us again. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus, as he walked. When you see this word walk a lot in the New Testament, and the way the authors are using it in the New Testament is just your general manner of life. The habits of your life. What characterizes you? That's what, when they use this word walk, that's what they're talking about. The one who says he abides in him, the general character of his life should match the general character of the one they claim to follow, Jesus Christ. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the general character of your life should demonstrate wanting to follow Jesus Christ, right? Like wanting to do what he did, wanting to live like he did. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father. When Jesus felt conflicts in his own life, like he regularly would demonstrate for us Father, I submit to your will. I submit to obeying you. Jesus loved the Father and sought to glorify the Father. Live in obedience to him. Jesus sought to love and to serve those who were around him. This should be the thing, these should be the things that characterize our lives if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. The, the general characteristic of our life should be submitting to the will of God. Loving God. Wanting to glorify Him in our lives. With the way we work, with the way we go to school, the way we interact with each other in here, with the way we interact with our parents. Like, we should look at all those things and say, okay, how am I glorifying God in this? 
How am I taking these opportunities to show other people around me the greatness of God? Like, do you see how there's an opportunity to show other people around you the greatness of God in the way you act? Like when you're interacting with your teachers. Some of them might not be believers. They know you are. They know at least what you claim to be. Does the way you interact with them say, hey, my God is great? Or even your parents. Look, your parents need your encouragement, okay? Like, I know they're your parents, and they're big and strong. But look, I'm a parent too, and life is challenging. I go to work, it's challenging. Like, I don't know, it's just life. There's a lot of challenges. My kids have an opportunity to be a tremendous blessing and encouragement in my life. When they demonstrate to me, like, hey, I want to obey God, and I want to follow God. Be no greater encouragement as a parent. So now put yourself in that situation, or think of yourself in that situation. Your parents, they're dealing with a lot of challenging things in life, too. And you have the opportunity to them that you value God, and that you want to glorify God. And there could be, I promise you, if your parents are in Christ, there can be no greater encouragement to them. You want to help your dad go to work tomorrow and like go with like a happy heart? Like start showing your dad that you think God is great and like demonstrate the greatness of God and the way you live for your dad. Or your mom, if she goes to work or if she doesn't go to an outside job, me the house is a ton of work and like I can at least turn my work computer off and what's weird about work is like there's no way anybody could ever contact me again if I don't get in there your my Jenna does not have that luxury we cannot turn Parker off um and uh even if we tried he would come to the bedroom wake us up but uh like but I don't even know your mom encourage your mom like glorify God in the way you encourage mom or like your classmates like you have the opportunity in the way you love the people around you at school on your athletic teams to show them that God is great Jesus was always showing people how great the father was what John is saying if you claim to abide in Christ you should live in the same manner that Christ lived and all the interactions God's given you opportunities with, glorify and honor him. Grow in Christ-likeness. Um, Philippians 2, I'm sorry, I lost track here. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul tells the Philippians, don't work for your salvation. You can't do that. But work out your salvation. The salvation that you have, let the works flow out of that. Because it's God who is at work in you. Exact same things John's teaching us. Let me give you three points of application. Number one, know what the gospel does, okay? Don't have a, like, version of the gospel in your mind. Know what the gospel does, the full gospel, that it saves you and changes you so that you can evaluate your own life. Are you in Christ or not? But also so that you can be discerning, so that when some guy's just claiming to be a Christian so that when you, you'll be interested in him and his life doesn't match up, you can know, hey, this guy's a fraud. Or when somebody is inviting you to a new church your first week on college campus and you go to this new church and they're like, yeah, we, we believe the Bible, we preach the gospel. But then they demonstrate they have no desire to obey God. You can say, hey, this is not the church for me. Know the full gospel. Second one, I know I, I put it in that first one, but it's just so critical. Examine yourself. Is your life characterized by a growing obedience to God? If it is, keep going, because that's the, the most sure sign that the Holy Spirit is in you when you see the fruit of the Spirit working out in your lives. If it's not, if you truly just don't care about obedience, it's a huge red flag. A huge red flag. 
you need to really evaluate. Okay, I might have claimed to be in Christ. I might have been baptized at some point. I might have said some prayer. But based on what John's seeing, I cannot cling and hold to those things. Like, I can't cling to that and say, like, oh, I should be good because I did all those things. No. John is saying that the gospel changes your life. That's the evidence you should be looking for as to whether or not you're in Christ. And if you are in Christ, just a quick reminder, continue to pursue that righteousness. Just what Paul told the Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's just with everything you've got, with all your might. Work it out. Like pursue Christ-likeness with everything you've got. Ultimately, though, relying on the fact that it's the Holy Spirit who works inside of you. So Paul told them, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you pour yourself 100% into it. The, the um, spiritual disciplines, you study God's word, you, you set aside that time to really focus on prayer, repent when you sin, make church, and really fellowship within the church a priority, not just showing up. I mean, it's great to show up and have fun and play human pinball. That's awesome. Do it. But show up to Truly be a part of the body of Christ. To serve one another. To encourage one another. I say it all the time. Maybe it's the whole joy and peace thing I struggle with, like I was talking about. Like, look, we're all having a hard time in different areas of life, right? Like, that's just the reality. Encourage one another. Serve one another. Like my my college roommate, he's had some really hard times. Amazing guy. When I got here, I just texted him before I walked up, said, hey, man, I love you and praying you're doing well. Just encourage people because people need it, okay? That's part. So don't just show up to show up, but look to truly be a part of the body of Christ. And it's simple. Get outside of yourselves from time to time. Life isn't just about you or me or any individual of us. It's about getting outside of ourselves and looking for just ways to encourage and love one another. That's what it means to walk as Christ walked. Let's pray. Lord, we do just thank you so much for the fact there's no condemnation in, when we're in you. Our sins are forgiven, and you change our lives. And I pray that we would just love those truths, cling to those truths, and pursue that sanctification with every fiber of our being. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.